It takes faith to believe that the resurrected Lord is watching over the, de the details, the daily details of his kingdom. It takes faith to believe that he calls imperfect people into positions of trust. It takes faith to believe that he knows the people he calls perfectly, both their capacities and their potential, and so makes no mistakes in his calls. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Radio Free Mormon. How are you doing this fine, exceptional Wednesday evening at 6.24 p.m. Mountain Time? Happy September to you. Yeah, my birthday's in two weeks. Oh, fantastic. I hope everybody listening will send some sort of a present. Yeah, it's September 14th. So here we are, another show. Uh, tonight, it was your episode. You have planned some incredible stories around uh, mission presidents and people extremely close to those folks. And uh, this has been a lot of fun to prepare. Last, I think the last three, four, five episodes have been an absolute blast to kind of get into. I think starting off with that President Nelson flight story that uh, you put a lot of work into. Um, I'll turn it over to you, my friend. But we started off there with Elder Iring saying it takes faith to believe that uh, the Lord calls all of these people and makes no mistakes. None. It does. It takes a lot of faith. And I think after tonight's episode, it will take even more faith. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, I think it will. No, tonight's episode, I wanted to talk about a particular mission president and a story that broke a few years back. And um, because it didn't get a lot of play in the media, at least not as much as I thought it deserved. And then I started doing more research and I found out, well, there's more. There's more mission presidents behaving badly. The title of tonight's show, by the way. And so uh, I do have a couple of announcements. First, there is somebody who in the, the chat that goes on, I can't see that as it's actually taking place. I will come back sometimes later in the night or the next morning and review it. And there's somebody out there who is a watch, a wristwatch aficionado, and they have seen my watch and they have exclaimed enthusiastically about it and wondered if it was a Vacheron Constantine watch. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but no, it is not. This is a Skagen watch. So it's Danish. It's not a Vacheron Constantine, but it is very, very nice watch. I recommend it highly. This was given to me as a present. However, coincidentally enough, this is the Vacheron Constantine. Ooh, look at that. Oh, yeah, baby. This is not, my, well, it is mine now. It was my dad's. My dad passed away on March 9th, 2011. And I managed to um, end up with this watch. Um, so I actually have not worn it, but this is a Vacheron Constantine. It's probably circa 1950 something. Anyway, so that's for the watch aficionados out there. Um, thank you for paying attention to what it is I'm wearing. I hope you like my t-shirt, Star-Lord, Legendary Outlaw. And there's another announcement, because last week we were talking about the second anointing. Remember that, Bill? The second anointing, which you won't confirm or deny. 
cannot do it. Don't even, stop asking me about it. Actually, there are lots of rumors out there that you've had at RFM, and you're you're perpetuating those rumors by uh, by neither confirming nor denying. Uh, I'm not. I'm not permitted to. All I can say is I'm not allowed to, you know, share my most spiritual experiences publicly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but what was I going to say? Second anointing. Oh, yeah. If you ask that three times, then you get locked out is the problem. So yeah. you don't want to ask that question to me too many times. I want um, and you have to contact your provider to get access again. So I we were talking about the temple and how the first part of the second anointing takes place in the temple, right? Mm -hmm. And we talked about the Holy of Holies. We talked about the ceiling room, Tom Phillips experience. Uh, one of the listeners to the program, whose name I'm not going to mention, messaged me that he or she, this listener was involved in some degree and in some respect with temple design. And this has been within the past five years or so. So this is recent. And this individual writes, they were briefly involved in temple design at some point in the last five years for multiple temples, at least one of which is still under construction. The main temple I worked on, I'm reading the message now, the main temple I worked on was in a foreign country in close proximity to another temple. Off of the main ceiling room, a small closet was hidden with a sink for the washing ceremony which presumably took place in the ceiling room. When I asked what the room was for, I was told for ordinances and no one would say anything more. more. As mm. far as, yeah, as far as I could gather, these rooms are places in every new temple. So we know, well, we understand, I can't say I know, uh, but that there are certain temples that do have a room called the Holy of Holies, like the Salt Lake Temple, though who knows what it'll have after the reconstruction. But some of the early temples actually have a room called the Holy of Holies. Um, after the first temples were built, subsequent temples uh, proliferated, which no longer had the special room called the Holy of Holies. At least this is my understanding through the grapevine, as it were. But apparently, even new temples, though they may not have a Holy of Holies, do have a room, a small room hidden off of the main ordinance room where there is a sink. Mm. apparently for the washing ceremony. Got so, it. and he, he, he or she concludes, as far as I could gather, these rooms are places in every new temple. And then he says, or she says, like I said, in the, this foreign country, there was already a temple in close proximity. And that was the relevance, I think, of uh, this person mentioning that, that there was another temple already in close proximity to this temple. Mm -hmm. Because why would you need to have a special room in this new temple, when there's one close by that presumably would already have it. Well, that's why this person thinks they're probably in all the new temples. Okay, so that's the new update there. We're going to talk now about mission presidents behaving badly. And we've got five stories to tell. And let me tell you who they involve, and then we'll get to each one. William Tucker. Are, is are the we starting with Albert Carrington? We are. And for some reason, I didn't put that in my outline, mainly because you came up with that one and you were going to start. We're going to go chronologically is what we're going to do. There's Albert Carrington from the latter part of the 19th century. That's old news. That's even before I was born. Then we go to a fellow named William Tucker in France in 1958. Then we'll go to Orson Wright, Sydney, Australia, 1980. 
then we have to give um, acknowledgement, at least, to MTC President Joseph Bishop, 1984. And finally, we'll get to a mission president named Philander Smart, the third. So he's not. Yes, Philander. Uh, Apparently, this is a family name. Well, he's the third one of that name, right? But it's P-H-I-L-A-N-D-E-R. Smart is spelled with two T's. Philander Smart the third, and this will be from the Puerto Rico mission as recently as 2014. So we'll start first with Albert Carrington. Can you tell us about yeah, Brother Carrington? I'd love to tell you about Brother Carrington. So um, let me go all the way to the top of our outline here. So Albert Carrington became an apostle and a member of the Quorum of the Twelve on July 3rd, 1870. He was, by the way, the 10th official church historian of the LDS Church between 1871 and 1874. So him and Leonard Arrington both held that same calling. Uh, From 1873 to 1877, he was a counselor to, uh, I believe, Brigham Young in the first presidency. What year? Do you know offhand what year Brigham Young died? 1877. Yeah, so that obviously, yeah. So 1873 to 77. Carrington's extramarital relationships begin began in England while he was the mission president there. He had hid these relationships from leaders of the church for over 10 years and had lied to the Quorum of the Twelve about them when rumors about Carrington began spreading. It was actually the Salt Lake Tribune, which first accused Carrington of adultery in 1875. So, but here's where it gets interesting. It's when he is finally caught by uh, the Quorum of the Twelve. He's brought back from England, and he goes into a disciplinary council. And so I'm going to pull it up here. Um, i got to find the right set of words. What is it you're pulling up? It looks like some oh, kind here. of an article. Yeah, this is, in fact, let's... Um, Go back up to the top here. Uh, This is a uh, Journal of Mormon History, Volume 37, Number 3. This is in the summer of 2011. And this is, uh, it starts at like page 127 or something like that. But it is the complete history of this entire case with uh, Albert Carrington. And I've made tons of jokes uh, about about this particular instance. But up on the screen right now, RFM, this is... I'll pull the outline back up. This is uh, Heber J. Grant's diary dated November 6th, uh, 1885. And this is what um, Heber J. Grant said. He said, Albert Carrington's mind was so darkened that he appeared to have no real appreciation of the crime he had committed and claimed that inasmuch as he did not, quote, go the whole figure, unquote, as he called it, that he had not committed adultery and went so far as to thank God for his goodness in preventing him from ever having committed adultery by not going the whole figure. As he said, he explained that he would enter a woman and before he had an omission, he would withdraw and not spill his seed within the woman. And as there was no mixing of seed, there was and could not be any adulteration and therefore no adultery. See what he did he found a loophole. If you go back to Webster's Dictionary, 1830, uh, what you find, you can go further than that too. You can go to the present day uh, dictionary, but that's the one we're always pointing to because of Joseph Smith. If you go to the dictionary and look up adulteration, you have to put a different substance in to adulterate whatever it is you're adulterating. So in order to have adultery, you have to essentially 
finish and put your semen uh, inside the woman that you're sleeping with. So he used this as one excuse. Look, I pulled out. I couldn't have adulterated her. So there was no adultery. So that was a kind of fun little loophole. But he does something else, too. So here I'll just do a little search for this word, which is inches. Uh, and here we go. Now, this one is Francis M. Lyman in a letter to Franklin D. Richards dated October 9th, 1886. And what he says, while thus an apostle, he, meaning uh, Carrington, put forth the doctrine to those silly and wicked women that his transgression was only, quote, a little folly in Israel, just a little tiny folly in Israel. And uh, he said, and that a man could carnally know a woman sexually, single or married, to the depth of four inches, if he would withdraw his seed, and it was not adultery. So this might have been a loophole, too. I mean, if he only had, again, no offense, but if he would have only had a three and a half inch penis. I know for some of us, that's all the way. That He could have gone, you know, uh, balls to the wall and... <laughs> And not had any issue at all. And so uh, when I look at this, I mean, this guy finds loopholes. And the funny thing is when you read about this, this disciplinary uh, court, this court of love that happened, Albert Carrington really tries to sell these two excuses to the brethren to the point where he keeps a straight face. He doesn't understand why these guys have a problem with him. He doesn't know why they're even having him sit here and have to explain himself. It is pretty crystal clear if you do not go in four inches or more, and you do not finish inside the woman, there is no adultery. And so I don't even know why I'm here, guys. So that's the story, the earliest mission president we could find a good story about, good old famous Albert Carrington. Oh, my gosh. Now, you know, the very fact that he has two excuses means that neither one of them he thinks is going to be convincing. It's kind of like the gospel topic essay on the book of Abraham, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, when you have multiple cures for a disease, you know you're finished because uh, then that means there's no cure for the disease. This is from right. Chekhov, this play I was reading last winter. Yeah, if there's multiple cures for a disease, that means there's none and you're a goner because if there were one cure that worked, that would be it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are, you're absolutely right. So I had a science teacher that we delivered tithing uh, to when I was the financial clerk, he was a member of the bishopric, and I was talking about the gospel topic essay and explaining all the explanations that it gave. And I said, do you know what happens in, when somebody tries to offer four solutions? And he says, yeah, when they offer four solutions, they don't have any. And I said, that's exactly what happens in the book of Abraham gospel topic essay. Wow. So Carrington does have two loopholes. Um, I've never heard those two loopholes used anywhere. I can think of a third. I can think of a third that he didn't use. What's that? I'm not. In, let's just say it rhymes, okay, with loophole. But I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Maybe he was the church's first soaker. I don't know. He might have been. It sounds kind of like he's just like the students at BYU. Yes, <laughs> the Carrington method. The Carrington method. I'm going to try that on my wife tonight. When you care enough, we didn't even have sex, baby. I didn't go in four inches. <laughs> when you care enough to use the Carrington method. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this. Yeah. So anyway, there's my story for the night. You, my friend, have the others and I will just supply some graphics. Take it away, RFM. OK, hopefully no graphic graphics. But the no, next no. one, next <laughs> one, we fast forward to 1958. So this is two years before I was born. Almost modern history. 
And this is the French or the France mission. This is William Tucker. Do you have a picture of him? Let me find our picture of William Tucker. He is a good looking man. Oh, he looks a little bit like a young radio free Mormon. I bet. I, I never bet looked that good on my best day. You would have made you would have made a good uh, helper on a mission too. Totally. Well, oh. he's a handsome enough devil. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> I'm telling you what, man. This guy should have no problem doing what he did. But I don't even know what he did. RFM. Why don't you? Tell oh, you me? don't. Well, if you want to find out in detail what he did, here is an article that got published in Dialogue a few years back, and it's all about this particular incident, this trial that the French mission was put through. It's called the trial of the French mission. And there's sort of a double entendre going on there with that use of trial. It's by a, a person named Khalil. I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's K-A-H-L-I-L-E, Mayor, M-E-H-R. But they did this wonderful article, and that's where I got the details from. But as I say, it's very, very uh, complex as far as it's written. I'm not going to go into all the details. First thing is, this guy... He's not the mission president, okay? And I actually thought originally, because I've never studied this incident before, but I've sort of heard about it now and again, this thing happening in France back in the 1950s, and it was a big deal. I thought it was the mission president, so I'm glad I researched it to find out it was not the mission president. The mission president there had clean hands. But this fellow, William Tucker, he goes on his mission. He gets called to France in 1957. He's good looking. He has heartthrob alert, Logan. Absolutely. He's good looking. He's charismatic. He's hardworking. And he goes there and he starts converting people. He has somewhat unorthodox methods of, of teaching, but dang, he's getting results. And France is a tough mission, you know, yeah. but he's actually getting people baptized. So he's coming to the attention of the mission president. He's coming to the attention of the other missionaries. He gets promoted pretty quickly. He's very well liked, well respected. He knows his stuff. So he ends up becoming the mission president. <laughs> Excuse me, not the mission president, the mission assistant to the president. In some missions, they were called MAs. That was like in my mission, it was called mission assistant. In others, they call them apes, the APs, the assistants to the president. Anyway, you know, this is the, the companionship that is right next to the mission president who helps him out with everything because they're the best missionaries in the entire mission. In his case, for whatever reason, there was no companion called and he served as the lone assistant to the mission president anyway. So the deal is this, he gets there, but before he goes on his mission, he has apparently already decided that the, that the church has sort of gone off the track with regard to polygamy, by which I mean that they should still be practicing it but they're not. So this is his view. And as usual, polygamy goes hand in hand with the Adam-God theory, the Adam-God doctrine, right? Just like it does in a lot of fundamentalist groups today. Um, they go together like love and marriage and marriage and marriage, the Adam-God doctrine and polygamy, right? right. So I want to try and make this as quick as I can, but it's so fascinating that he gets there and then he starts converting missionaries. He's out there converting non-member French people to the church. But while he's doing that, he's got a mission inside of a mission going on where he's trying to approach different missionaries and get them to convert to his way of belief, his even more cult-like belief. All right. And it's mainly Adam-God doctrine. It's mainly plural marriage. It's mainly a word of wisdom. Everybody should be vegetarians and also temple garments that they should be wearing the old temple garments. And this is several generations of temple garments ago. 
So I think he's talking about the ones that are like complete body length, like the union suit with the, the markings probably cut in them. Anyway, he starts getting some missionaries who agree with him and he gets maybe a dozen or so. There's sister missionaries, there's elders as well. And they're throughout the mission, but he ends up getting three guys, uh, three of the elders who agree with him. He gets them sort of, uh, because he's the assistant to the president, he gets them transferred to be with him. And then they go out together and they sort of share the good news among the missionaries. So they get all these converts. Um, like I say, the mission president apparently doesn't know anything about this. One of the great stories in this, and this is 1958, when he's really got this up and running. One of the great stories is that he's been talking to some missionaries out in a district. I think it's Marseille, but it may be somewhere else. And he's got some of them believing in the Adam God theory. And of course, all of his converts are trying to convert other missionaries because that's how it goes, right? You tell two friends and they tell two friends and then they tell two friends. And so this is this work they're engaged in. And He's at the mission home. William Tucker's at the mission home where he always is, except when he's going out and training the missionaries. And there's a dispute in this district because some of his followers are trying to convince the other guys, the other missionaries about the Adam God theory. And these other guys aren't buying it. So there's like this argument that they have. And one of the guys who's not buying it writes a letter to Joseph Fielding Smith in Utah. And as all good letters to general authorities do, or I should say, as most of them do, they end up not being answered directly, but they get forwarded back to the, the leader, the immediate priesthood leader of the person who wrote the letter, right? So this letter gets back to the mission president. And he says, oh my gosh, so they're having a dispute about the Adam God theory out there in Marseille. Hey, Elder Tucker, I want you to go out there and fix it. So he sends Elder Tucker, the guy who's causing all of this in the first place, to go out there and fix the problem. So, of course, he goes out there and he comes back and he says, yeah, I got it taken care of. Everything's fine. <laughs> I love that story. So two of these missionaries now, they're a companionship and they decide they've had it with this mission. They're going to quit the mission. They're going to go home. And they end up going and talking to the mission president and telling him how they feel. And the mission president starts getting wise now because they're letting stuff slip about Tucker's involvement. He calls Tucker into the room and he starts grilling him. And finally, uh, William Tucker cracks under the mission president's cross-examination. And he confesses that he's behind it, even though, of course, I'm sure he's quite indignant and self-righteous about it because he's in the right and the church is in the wrong. Okay. So now the president's got this huge mess on his hand. There's sister missionaries, there's elders who are involved in this. He doesn't exactly know how far it goes, but he knows it's a big problem. And guess what's coming up? September of 1958, the London Temple dedication. Mm. So all the missionaries from England and uh, Great Britain are going to London for the temple dedication, just like back in September of 1980. I and every missionary in Japan went to Tokyo for the Tokyo temple dedication. It's a big deal. So they all, and all of the missionaries from France too, they all go across the channel. They go to London as well for the temple dedication. And the general authorities who are there for the temple dedication are Henry B. Moyle, Joseph Fielding Smith, and Hugh B. Brown. And the crazy thing is that while the sessions of the temple dedication are ongoing, there are lots of time, multiple sessions to accommodate everybody who wants to be there for a session. While this is going on in London, 
these general authorities and the mission president are having excommunication trials for these missionaries. And they're trying to do everything they can, I think, to iron out the problem, get these missionaries to stay and get them to say, hey, knock it off, guys, just stop. But they refuse. They refuse. One of the uh, interesting vignettes that's described in this article is where one of the missionaries, not Tucker, but one of his acolytes is seen arguing face to face with Joseph Fielding Smith. <laughs> mm. I mean, these guys are so sure that they're right. And of course, Joseph Fielding Smith was sure that he was right. So I, I guess that was a sight to behold. Anyway, they're unable to get them to see the error of their ways. And 11 of them, I believe, get excommunicated. So now they have to head back across the channel to France. And the interesting thing I thought that kind of blew my mind when I read this article is that the next thing is that they have to scramble around and try and find work or money so they can buy passage back to the United States. Because when these people were excommunicated, they were really excommunicated. The church wasn't going to be paying to send them back. They had to do that on their own. Mm -hmm. And they eventually made it back. And most of them end up not going to the United States or they end up in Mexico with Irva LeBaron's group. And when they're in Mexico, this handsome fellow ends up marrying two of the sister missionaries that he converted in France. Yeah. I, the only thing I've got to add in here, RFM, is, you know, Albert Carrington, Tucker, and as we move through the program, I mean, it. I'm seeing already um, predatory behavior in him. I'm sure Carrington groomed the, the, the women, the female females that he was um, taking advantage of as well. And we're going to see the other stories here that have these same kinds of things to them. I would simply invite the listener to compare the grooming behaviors and the way these men behaved with the behaviors of Joseph Smith, right? Like that should stand out and that there should be some similarities there. Yes. So uh, I agree. And there's a lot of similarities. And one of the main similarities has to do with this idea of, um, well, first off, obviously um, there's sexual malfeasance, but um, a lot of times polygamy goes hand in hand with it. And at the end of this, I want to try and draw some conclusions and see why that might be. Um, but anyway, uh, let me see here. I did want to make a couple of comments at this point that, oh, this is, this is the line in this article where I thought this, this author said this beautifully. It's, it's something about uh, Mormonism that I've long noticed, but listen to how this person puts it describing William Tucker intrigued by the former practice of polygamy and the many mysteries mentioned, but not clearly defined in the statements of early church authorities, he, Tucker, began to develop his own divergent conclusions and to question the teachings of modern church authorities. I thought that was very, very well put. This is one of the problems that Mormonism have. And I think we all know that old teachings, when they change over time, you can look at the Adam-God theory, for example, or any number of teachings that change over time. What the church wants to portray is that there's never any change in the teachings. It's always the same. Uh, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that kind of stuff, right? And so what they do is they almost never repudiate earlier teachings. They know when they're changing them, 
but they don't want to repudiate them and draw attention to the fact that they are changing them. Instead, they'll just change them without mentioning they're changing them. And they will let the old teachings continue to exist in written form. A lot of times in the Journal of Discourses, William Tucker is big on reading the Journal of Tis Discourses, surprise, surprise, which are, of course, a collection of discourses of early church leaders. So um, we all know that old teachings are often superseded. But as I say, the church sees a need to present as if the teachings don't change. Therefore, the old teachings are seldom addressed. They are simply left behind without cutting ties with them. Then what happens um, to some extent with me, certainly with uh, William Tucker, then studious Mormons, they read the old teachings in places like the Journal of Discourses. And because the church has not officially discounted them, it's easy to see these old discarded teachings, which have not been discarded, <laughs> as the meat of the gospel that the church talks about. Because really the church is always saying milk before meat, milk before meat. Well, it's always going to be milk and you're never going to get any meat. That's the carrot that's held out in front of the, the donkey on the stick to get him to keep going, to keep chasing the carrot, but they're never going to get it. But we're told that meat exists. So we go back, we read Journal of Discourses or other things. We find these old teachings which have never been discarded or discounted or disavowed. And it's easy to think that those are the meat of the gospel. And from there you get into thinking, I found the meat of the gospel. And it's also easy to think that the leaders of the church secretly believe them. Right? Because this is the meat. They just can't teach it openly because the members aren't ready for it. Only the studious, more advanced Mormons who've actually searched this stuff out are ready for it. And then rumors persist. Like for one thing, uh, William Tucker was telling other missionaries that there were some GAs who were secretly practicing polygamy, even at the time. So it's very easy to think, well, they know about it. They're practicing it. And I'm in on the big secret now. And now I'll teach other people and I will gather them into my particular fold. Um, this reminded me of an H.P. Lovecraft quote where he says, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. Yeah. And just to put something on top of that, which is every splinter group that Mormonism has incurred after it went west to Utah, along with voices like Julie Rowe and some of the stuff that uh, uh, Chad and Lori Daybell were saying recently uh, before they got arrested, um, all the polygamist groups that have their kind of basis in old teachings, every time the church that makes these changes you speak of doesn't repudiate them clearly and cleanly when it happens. Uh, what they end up doing is getting haunted by these things one after the other as their history continues. Yes. And it's situations like this. We'll draw a few more conclusions at the end, but I wanted to bring that up now because this is such a great example of it with William Tucker and this whole idea of teaching that there's general authorities who are secretly practicing polygamy right now. Mm -hmm. So, and we'll talk more about polygamy at uh, at the end, but obviously the church has said they've, they've um, disavowed the practice of polygamy. They've stopped it, but they've never disavowed the principle. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. this wonderful sort of ambiguous, is it dead or is it alive kind of thing? And H.P. Um, Lovecraft says, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And of course, she's talking about, you know, crazy dark God kind of things like H.P. Lovecraft would, but it sounds like Mormon doctrines. 
the, the old Mormon doctrines. They can't eternal lie in the pages of volumes like the Journal of Discourses. They're never dead because the church leaders never drove a stake through their heart. Yeah, and, and I felt the same way you did. And a lot of people in the comments are saying the same thing, that they they felt it was kind of like that, that the things you had to dig and uncover and reconcile kind of in the history was the deeper doctrines of the church that nobody had ever said they weren't true. So you're trying to figure out how it fits. And maybe they just want the general public and the surface level Mormons to not know these things. Right. And obviously the people who are telling these stories or uh, saying these things uh, were church general authorities, their apostles, their presidents of the church, just from a, a former age. Right. And so we understand that these are prophets, seers and revelators. They have the direct pipeline to God, just like the current uh, leaders do. So why wouldn't we think that they are more advanced in their knowledge than we are and think that what they're saying is true? Right, right. Absolutely. So we've talked about Albert Carrington. We've talked about William Tucker. Now let's go on to mission presidents. Definitely. We're going to go to Sydney, Australia for this one. And this is mission president Orson Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And the thing that was interesting about this to me is that when I was in Japan, which was from the end of 1979 to the end of 1981, November to November for my two years. This fellow was the mission president in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, at the exact same time when I'm in Japan. Mm. Um, by the way, I do need to say here that I recognize and I want to state for the record that I realize that there are hundreds and even thousands of men who have been called as mission presidents in the church's history. And there are probably hundreds of them serving right now as I speak. And by and large, the vast majority, almost without exception, I'm sure, serve at great sacrifice to themselves and they serve honorably and they work hard and they do the very best job they possibly can for the missionaries. And I appreciate them and I appreciate my mission president too. I'll have a story to tell about him later, a good story by the way. But every now and again, every now and again, uh, something goes wrong. And that happened with William Tucker, who was not a mission president, but it definitely happened with mission president Orson Wright. And what he ended up doing, by the way, I didn't find any articles about him, like the article you found about Albert Carrington or the article that I found about the trial of the French mission and William Tucker. Yeah. I don't see that there was a whole lot that was ever written or published about this. This was kept pretty darn secret, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and where I found out about it was from a Mormon stories interview that John DeLynn did with a fellow who's a psychologist named Dave Christian. And this was episode 557. It was done back in August of 2015. So seven years ago, this interview. And Dave Christian was a missionary in this mission. And he saw things that were going on. Later on, he got home and he did some further investigation, so he was able to find out some things about what had happened, but not everything. So there's a lot of details that aren't known here. But basically, to Dave's surprise, Orson Wright was removed from the mission as mission president. He was removed from the mission for propositioning the sister missionaries of the mission to be his polygamous wives. And the reasons, I'm going from the write-up, that's on the podcast page. And the reasons for President Wright's removal from the mission were covered up by the LDS church leadership. 
including Thomas S. Monson and Joseph B. Worthlin, who are the uh, individuals who were sent out to try and take care of this situation. And part of it was they went out there, they took care of the situation, they relieved Orson Wright of his presidency, shipped him back to the States. And it was during that time that missionary, um, Dave Christian, yeah, being a missionary, was asking some questions and he found out at the time that uh, the mission president had been taken back to the States and was being tried for his membership in the church. If I recall correctly, there were 14 sister missionaries in this particular mission. President Orson Wright got 10 of them to agree to his teachings. Now think about that. 10 out of 14 sister missionaries in 1980 agreed with him and his teachings. I don't know how far that went, but apparently it was enough to get him tried for his membership. Two of them did not. Now, this is what's written here. It's like 14 minus 10 equals two. That doesn't make sense to me. But he got the majority to, to agree. A few didn't. And they called home and reported it. See, that was the problem. They reported it. And that's how the church got wise and sent out the leaders to take care of the situation. And I think it's fair to surmise that when the church leaders are sent out in a situation like this, Part of their job is to get this guy out of his position as soon as possible. And another part of the job seems to be to squash the story so it doesn't go public. Um, all I can say is I don't know that that happens because I'm not privy to those private conversations between the leaders of the church who are sent out and the individual missionaries who are the victims and who may know about it. All I know is that in this particular case, this is basically the only place I found out about it. There's no newspaper stories about it. There's no civil cases filed or criminal charges pressed or anything that I'm aware of. Um, at least not that I could find on the internet. Maybe somebody else out there can find some things. I found a few things that looked like they were privately posted by people who might've known about it. Some things that were posted might've been on Reddit that were a response to this particular interview that Mormon Stories and John DeLynn did with um, this fellow, Dave Christian, about Orson Wright. But this seems to be largely kept hidden from the public. And I expect that there's a reason that it has been successfully kept largely from public view. I, I'm only going to add here because we'll we'll see the other side of the coin later on in the show as we're talking. But there are certain kinds of stories in Mormonism where things happen and it feels as though as long as it doesn't go public. As long as it doesn't go public, we never need to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. We never need to speak on it. And we'll see here later on where kind of the opposite happens. Yes. So now we go. That was one, two, three. Albert Carrington, William Tucker, and this fellow right here, Orson Wright. By the way, he passed away recently. Isn't that right? He did. I've, I've got an obituary here somewhere. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up here really quick. Does it mention getting uh, released prematurely as mission president? Orson yeah. Wright, 1927 to 2017. It does mention that he was a, a mission president right there. Salt Lake Temple Ordinance Worker and Temple Square Tour Guide for 20 years. Um, he shares his testimony of the truth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its restoration. I like the line above it. His most beautiful times were those spent with his family and loved ones. He's got extra loved ones. 
<laughs> I shouldn't do that. I mean, it's an obituary for crying out loud. Obviously, they're not going to write about that in there. But this is the individual, and he's passed away. And uh, apparently, he had some issues when he was on his mission with um, uh, promoting plural marriage with the sister missionaries who are under his his supervision and uh, protection. It was supposed to be him. Right. Um, okay, so that's that. Let's go to Joseph Bishop. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Joseph Bishop because heaven knows I've spent too much time on Joseph Bishop in the past. Uh, but we should not neglect to mention him either in this regard, because we've gone from the end of the 19th century with Albert Carrington. We've gone to 1958 with Tucker, 1980 with Orson Wright, and now basically 1984 with MTC president Joseph Bishop. Uh, the president of the biggest mission, as far as numbers of missionaries, probably the smallest in terms of uh, ge geographical area, right? But the biggest in terms of the number of missionaries that he's over at the MTC. And even though I think it's probably wise to bracket the allegations that McKenna Denson made against Joseph Bishop, nevertheless, as a result of her blowing the whistle and bringing this to the attention of authorities and the investigation that the BYU PD did, Joseph Bishop ended up confessing to sexual improprieties with sister missionaries during the time that he was the MTC president. He denied anything about McKenna Denson, but ends up admitting about other sister missionaries, or at least one other sister missionary that he admitted to. So that's another instance and I just want to say really quick, I've got up on the screen, uh, just to, again, we started off with Elder Eyring's comment about discernment, the guide to the scriptures on LDS.org or now the Church of uh, Jesus Christ.org. Uh, discernment, to understand or know something through the power of the Spirit. It includes perceiving the true character of people. You have uh, Joseph Bishop talking about his interactions with President Kimball and being set apart and all that went into that. And then you also have uh, Joseph Bishop saying, yes, I'm Joe, I'm a sexual predator. You, you've got this same uh, kind of story, which is that these mission presidents get called from the very top. They get approval from the first presidency. If discernment isn't working here, where in the hell is it working? Number one. And number two, we're essentially halfway into all of this, maybe a little further than half. The women who have been abused in every one of these stories you know, these are nameless folks in the background that we don't have access to tell their names or their stories, nor would we want to do that necessarily. But to recognize there are a lot of people who have been harmed and traumatized uh, and taken advantage of at the expense of un, uh, unequal power dynamics and, and trusting people to be the voice of God and trusting people to be doing the Lord's errand. And all that can go wrong when you start off with the premise that discernment works. Right. And that whole idea of discernment, I like the quote from the guide to the scriptures, but it's not something you have to look up. That's exactly what President Eyring was really driving home in that clip from General Conference from a few years ago that you played at the opening of tonight's episode. Yeah. And he said they make no mistakes. If you, it takes faith to believe that uh, leaders are called who are, you know, fallible, they make mistakes, um, but that God doesn't make any mistakes in calling them. So you have to believe that God knows these things are going to happen and that God is, at the end of the day, it's really his fault. Right. Right. Usually the argument from the other side is about free agency, but still, 
if God knows, <laughs> the agency doesn't square this away because now you have to deal with a God who calls somebody knowing this is going to happen. Right. And knowing that sister missionaries, especially, are going to be victimized by this individual in the name of God's church and by the authority of God's priesthood, by which I mean a priesthood holder in a position above them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that doesn't square with me either. Yeah. You, stewardship, authority, discernment. Here's the voice. He's the person designated to hear the voice of God for you. Those kinds of teachings are at the root of all this, this abuse, which is to me egregious, I mean, deeply egregious. Yes. And you are actually anticipating some of the closing comments. I'm glad you're bringing them up. Sorry, now we I'm don't not, have, I'm no, sorry. we don't have to wait till the end. Yeah. No, sorry about that, my friend. No, 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 that's okay. There's no big surprise here. This is an important component of how it is that this kind of thing happens in the LDS church and how grown women, they got to be at least 21 years old at the time of all of these stories that we're talking about, right? Before yeah. they were called on a mission, yeah. grown women will allow themselves to be victimized in this way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think it's very important that we talk about that. So there's that. And then we have... That was 1984, and now we get to the last case, Philander Smart. Once again, this is something that happened in 2014. So we're getting pretty close to the present now. We're within the past decade. And Philander Smart was, oh, you have his picture? Sure do. There it is, my friend. Okay, now that's not his best picture. That's Come on. Best one, but the other one has his wife in it, and she's an innocent victim in this too. So I, I thought it'd be more appropriate just to keep the photo to him. Okay. Well, the one other photo that you have, just so everybody knows, is available on the church website. And I guess I can show that just so people can see that he actually was called as a mission president. But yeah. again, I'm also sensitive to these situations where, um, let's see. And that's good of you because she's certainly a victim as well. Yeah. I will tell you that, uh, yeah, it's, it's so public. It's yeah. still on the church's website. Is this 2013? This is 2013. Looks yeah. like it is March 2nd. Right. So this is when he was called as the mission president for Puerto Rico San Juan mission. Right. And it talks about how great Brother Smart is, although uh, I mean, I don't have the power of discernment necessarily. But if I'm calling a mission president whose first name is Philander, I'm going to be a little suspicious. I got to tell you. Yeah. In fact, when you were thinking about just calling uh, or just doing this episode on just Philander Smart, which is how we originally started this conversation. Right. Um, I thought maybe a good title would be Philander the Philanderer. Um, but yes, and I came back with saying, well, how about Get Smart? Yeah, Get Smart. And it should be noted too, again, um, this, there's other smarts in the church. And uh, oh my goodness, the, the young lady was kidnapped by the. Oh, yeah. Elizabeth? Um, Elizabeth Smart. It's, it's just one T. This is a completely different branch of smarts. Um, but just to note that. Okay. Did I get that right? Is her first name Elizabeth? Yeah, Elizabeth Smart. You got it. Okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. So anyway, here's this individual. And strangely enough, they still have his picture on the church website. The, the scrubbers have not been doing their job as well as they should. So this is from 2013. He gets called on the mission. He's very, very successful uh, individual. I think he's probably a lawyer. Can't swear to it, but uh, from Alabama, I think it is yeah. super wealthy. His dad was, uh, I think, very wealthy too. And uh, so he wanted for nothing. He gets called as a mission president. He, again, very charismatic, goes out to San Juan, has his airplane because he's a pilot. His little airplane uh, shipped out or flown out, or maybe he flies it out. Anyway, he has his airplane 
transported out there to uh, Puerto Rico with him. And this is an absolutely gorgeous mission with these wonderful islands as part of the mission. And what he ends up doing, what he ends up doing is taking the sister missionaries, uh, some sister missionaries, apparently the ones that caught his eye, and transferring them out to the different islands. Okay. So having sister missionary companionship out on this island, this one, all the guys got to come home to Puerto Rico, you know, sorry guys, but I have different ideas in mind for who I want out on the nice islands. And those are sister missionaries flies out to meet with them and gives airplane rides to certain sister missionaries and gifts. He gives them gifts of an undisclosed kind. And apparently there's um, polygamy going on. There's polygamy being taught. There's apparently sexual relations going on between him and the sister missionaries, or at least a lot of them. Now, once again, a lot of this is shrouded in mystery because what ends up happening is that in May of 2014, during his second year there as mission president, apparently one of the sister missionaries or one of their companions calls home and reports this to either a stake president or probably a family member, probably a parent. But anyway, it makes it to a stake president, makes it to up the chain to Salt Lake City, and they are going out there on the next flight to Puerto Rico, kind of like what they did in Sydney, Australia. They're going out there. They're going to take care of this. They land. They have this person, Philander Smart, released as the mission president. He's sent home with his wife. A story's put out that he has to leave prematurely because his wife has medical issues. Whether his wife really had medical issues, I'm not sure she may have, but that became the, the story as to why it is that he couldn't be the mission president anymore. They end up putting in another individual, another GA as a temporary mission president for a couple of months. Then they call another mission president for uh, the regular three-year term. Go ahead. Can I just say, RFM, it, it seems unethical when the impetus, and again, she may have had health issues, but you and I both know it seems pretty damn clear that the real reason for removing him is what he was doing. Yeah. And so it seems deeply unethical and dishonest and seems to involve lying to then say another reason, even if that reason has some truth to it. Because remember, Gospel Principles uh, Manual tells us that even withholding some information or obscuring the truth is lying. So when the church comes out and doesn't just stand up for right and try to hold accountable wrong and give uh, BS excuses for why things change when it's some other reason, to me also points to a deep dishonesty within the Mormon church. Well, there's a point there you make, definitely. And I will tell you that uh, apparently the reason for the cover story is because they don't want anybody to know, even in the mission, what's going on beyond those who already know and who have been impacted and even victimized yeah. by this behavior. So the whole point is to narrow that group of people who know and then meet with them. And then apparently, once again, I'm not privy to these private conversations that the general authorities had with these sister missionaries, but none of them talk about it. None of them go public. It is all put under the cone of silence. It's all suppressed. It's all squashed. And the first time this becomes public is four years later. Hmm. This is what a good job they did of, of hide, hiding the story, of squashing the story, whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean. Four years later, apparently somebody calls Peggy Fletcher Stack 
And I think it's someone who is anonymous and tells her about this. She's going to write a story about it. She approaches the church about it to get their comment, right? And they, the church ends up releasing a statement. And either they had it in their back pocket ready to go in case this should happen, right? It was four years before. Or they just burned the midnight oil coming up with it so they could release it the same day that Peggy Fletcher Stack releases the story in the Salt Lake Tribune. In other and words, had, had Peggy never reached out to them, had never gotten a phone call with information, none of us would know about Philander Smart to this day. Not at all. Yeah. We would never know about him, which is apparently the goal. It right? is. Cool. You are right. You you said this a few weeks ago and we used it last week in the episode, but I think I'm going to make sure that listeners hear this as a common theme. You're the one who came up with this. You said Mormonism makes liars of us all. And again, it seems at every turn that what the church does is some degree of obfuscation, dishonesty, deceptiveness, um, sleight of hand, smoke and mirrors. And every story we read about with the church it is it is uh, some level of dishonesty and lack of transparency involved. Right. Well, when your paramount goal is to get people to join the church and to have members stay in the church, then everything else becomes of secondary consideration. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let when you and also too when one of your goals is to per, per, protect the good name of the church, but the church really doesn't have a good name. It requires a lot of extra effort too. extra protection. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. So this comes out on April 26, 2018 in the Salt Lake Tribune. And I want to read a little bit from this article. Now, this didn't get a lot of press. It comes out in the Tribune, but this is right in the middle of the mess of the disclosure about Joseph Bishop. That was in March of 2018, remember? This is the following month. So even though the church wasn't going to talk about this, they present this statement and they want to spin it in such a way as to show how it was the church responded promptly to the situation with Philander Smart in Puerto Rico. Mm. So that's what they do. And they want to spin it that way. But they said a few things in their statement that I thought were interesting and perhaps inadvertent admissions on their part. Let's see. We are basically at the one hour mark for this. So, And this is the last story we'll be talking about. Uh, let me just say a couple things from this article. You can find this on the Internet. It's called The Case of a Fallen Mission President colon, when the Mormon church promptly removed a leader who deceived and victimized young female missionaries. That's the entire headline. And the deceived and victimized is a quote from the church's statement. So the church admitted that this happened. They don't want to go into details about what happened, but I think it's pretty clear what happened. And I think that Peggy Fletcher Stack tried to call some of these people, these victims, these sister missionaries. It's four years later. They didn't want to talk to her. Mm. So it's certainly possible. I mean, if I were in that position, I, I can understand not wanting to have the public know about this, right? Right. I can understand that. And the church pushes the um, the argument that they're doing all this to protect the victims, right? And they may be, but at the same time, I think it's pretty clear they're protecting the church as well. So let's read a little bit from here. Um, so he arrived in Puerto Rico. On July 1st, 2013, 10 months later, he was dismissed as mission president 
and booted from the church for unspecified misconduct with multiple young female missionaries. Okay. Um, the victims, all older than 18, chose not to pursue criminal charges. That's a quote from the church's official statement presented by LDS church spokesman, Eric Hawkins. What does what is it super safe to assume from a sentence like that, RFM? Well, I don't know because, uh, well, okay. What would seem to be safe to assume from that would be that something criminal happened. <laughs> oh. Because taking sister missionaries for a flight in your airplane, probably not criminal. Giving them gifts? Yeah. Mm, no, I don't think that's a crime either. Hmm. What could it be? And by the way, they're all 21 years old. That by the way, this is 2000. This is 2014, though. The mission age was lowered before that, right? Yeah, perhaps. But even then, right, we're talking 19-year-olds. Yes. So they're all older than 18, like the, the news article says. I'm not sure exactly what crime would have been committed if it were consensual. But maybe there are some federal laws. I'm assuming the federal law is applied there in Puerto Rico. But um, anyway, if a church was a healthy church and one of its uh, people in authority got caught doing really bad things, mm -hmm. appearing to be criminal, for instance. Yes. Um, you would think as a good, healthy, true and living church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, of of Jesus himself upon the, the, the earth at this last dispensation, that you would just be forthright and honest, hold people accountable and just name what happened. Yeah, you would. Now, I do understand this about the, the sister missionaries. And of course, yeah. the church's argument is, well, we're not going to name the sister missionaries, but everybody knows who the sister missionaries are who are serving there in that mission under him, right? Yeah. So even without naming them, we're essentially identifying them as, as being likely the people who were involved. And we don't want to yeah. do that to them. But, you know, the statement says the all the victims, however many there were, church is going to be really squishy about that, too, chose not to pursue criminal charges. Okay, well, there is another line there, too. Hawkins noted Wednesday that no police report was requested by the victims. What does that mean? I don't know, because that's just a really, really weird line. What when it says no mean, police report was requested by the victims. What it does I, mean, though, is there is a police report that exists, right? It could. It could be uh, inaptly or inartfully worded, yeah. like a report to police. It seems but, like they could have asked police to make a report or they could have requested an existing report. But either way, it sounds like something happened that the police could have made a report on. I will tell you that back in 2018, when the story broke, I did take it upon myself to do a Freedom of Information Act request to the who I who I figured would be the custodian of records in Puerto Rico who might have police reports and asking for any related to this individual, Philander Smart III. I received no response. Yeah, sorry. That letter. I, I, I tried to kill him. Yeah, so there was nothing turned over to you, nothing that they said existed. Uh, I received no response. Gotcha. No response. <laughs> they didn't say anything to me. That's its own thing, huh? Right. But, but all these sisters who are adults chose of their own free will after meeting with uh, church leaders to not pursue criminal charges. Yeah. And apparently, even though this is not in the statement, they didn't file any kind of civil action against the church. Because you yeah. can imagine that the church would be civilly liable, probably for relatively large amounts of money, at least for me or you, maybe not for the church, if one of their employees as a mission president was doing this with the sister missionaries. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, it seems as though the church does need billions and billions of dollars, maybe. Yes. <laughs> so it is a good thing that they have the EPA fund. You're right. Maybe mm -hmm. this is the real reason they have it is to pay out uh, people oh, to get them to sign NDAs. Yeah. And once again, I don't know if there's any NDAs that were involved here. Facts are very, very hard to come by in this story. I can't say that he used polygamy in order to woo these young women. Okay. I can't say that I don't know it from this article, although other people who present themselves as having been there or having knowledge of it say, yeah, that's what was going on, but I can't verify that. Yeah. And, um, Anyway, I'm, I'm just as I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around all of this stuff, like, again, the only reason the facts aren't out there is because the church doesn't want to tell us the information. It is the holder of the data in almost all of these instances on this episode, as well as all the other times we'd like to get clarification of what's going on. They're the ones who have the information. They're the ones who are always withholding it and always to their benefit. Well, you're on mute. I was going to say they ended up doing a good job and I got, once again, this is speculation on my part, but I don't think it's that far fetched. They did a good job of landing with both feet, taking care of business and fixing the situation. They sent in fixers to take care of the situation, to get everybody to be quiet about it, to not talk about it publicly, to not uh, pursue criminal charges, to not um, file civil lawsuits against the church. And everything was put um, to bed, no pun intended, but everything was put to bed and it would have stayed forever there, except for four years later, apparently somebody called Peggy Fletcher Stack. Yeah. And it's right here in this article where it says uh, it's the church itself who says these sister missionaries had been deceived and victimized. It's right there. So that's the church saying they were deceived. What were they deceived about? I don't know. Could have to do with polygamy. And then victimized. So that's the church's admission about what happened. They don't say anything more than that, but they do admit to that much and the fact that he was taken out of there and then uh, was excommunicated. So let me go back to my outline. That's pretty much everything there. There's a couple of other things. Yeah, you mentioned the no police report was requested. Uh, the church in its statement wants to take credit for providing ecclesiastical and emotional counseling. Yeah, that ecclesiastical counseling. I wonder what that consists of. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Is that just the LDS family services and getting a, a, a believing? No, no. Ecclesiastical is is priesthood leaders. Oh, so you've just got your your bishop and uh, maybe stake president helping out. Well, you've got general authorities heading out there too sweet in order to put down the revolt and keep it quiet. Yeah. If you really care about people, you put them in with professional therapists and counselors. Yes. And maybe there were some of that. I don't know. But, you know, uh, the ecclesiastical counseling is a big red flag. There's a place for ecclesiastical counseling. I'm not saying that's not the case, but I've got a feeling that that ecclesiastical counseling was for the benefit of the church as well as for the benefit of the sister missionaries. And I got to believe Curtin McConkie was working by candlelight that night. Oh, my gosh. Yes. They were burning the midnight oil. Um, okay. Further down, it says Smart, a wealthy Alabama lawyer, developer, assigned several female pairs to isolated islands, far from other missionaries or the mission home in the capital of San Juan. He bought clothes and jewelry for some of the women, 
sister missionaries, he flew them from place to place in his private plane, which he arranged to be sent to the mission within a few months of his arrival. And then it goes on, Smart's treatment of the female proselyters in his care was exposed when one sister missionary took the unusual step of phoning her stake president on the U.S. mainland. Mm. She reported what was going on and that regional lay leader, i.e. the stake president, alerted officials in Salt Lake City. Mm. Yeah, I just, I, I going over these stories, again, because we already know, based on the data here, that the church is not going to talk out loud about these things when they occur, unless it starts to get some sort of media attention, it then becomes super safe to assume that other kinds of events like these that we've talked about tonight have happened, and because they were able to squash it and silence it, and it never made it to the media, we don't get to know what those stories are, do we? Right. And once again, I've got to say it over and over, right? Because I don't want anybody to call me out on it. I don't know that the church squashed the story. Yeah, okay. But, I say that. Allegedly, it, it appears rational and logical from the data that's there to assume that that's what happened. Yes. Very well put. Thank you. You should be a lawyer. I think I would have been okay at it. Not as good as you, but I think I'd have been all right. No, no. You would be an excellent lawyer. You have the heart of a lawyer, <laughs> which means no heart at all, actually. But Cold heart. Oh, yeah. by the way, I heard this great, great joke, this great lawyer joke. We'll finish with this in a second, but jokes are first. Uh, I hadn't heard this before. So here's the deal, okay? This is a, a thought question, a moral dilemma. You are in the same room with Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, and a lawyer. You have a gun, but it has only two bullets in it. What do you do? You shoot the lawyer twice. To make sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess uh, maybe you heard that one before too. Or did you just figure that out? That's what you would do. I just knew it wasn't either of the obvious answers. It had to right. be the third. Yes. So it goes on with this statement. This is once again in the article. This is Hawkins, young Jim Hawkins of the LDS Church. This is a tragic and heartbreaking case of deception and betrayal. That's how the church characterizes what happened. Deception and betrayal that has impacted the lives of a number of people. When church leaders learned of what had occurred, the mission president was immediately and dishonorably released from his position, sent home, and excommunicated. So that's what the church had to say about it. So obviously, there was something really, really bad happening down there in the Puerto Rico mission. Um, Peggy Fletcher Stack goes on to mention multiple young sister missionaries declined to be interviewed. That was declined to be interviewed, by the way. So I'm just pulling out of the story the things that I'd already mentioned before in my recap of it, before I got to the news article, so you can see where I was getting this information. Multiple young sister missionaries declined to be interviewed, but noted that they too appreciated the church's response. Okay, so that is the tr sad, tragic, and outrageous case of Philander Smart the third. Yeah, and, and I just want to say too, as a note, when when the LDS Church obscures these events when they happen, as much as they try to squash some of this allegedly 
and keep it from the public's eye. It, it ought to be noted that what you do is you create a safe space for predators. You create a safe space for abusers when, when the, the punishment is always going to be severely less. Uh, no one's ever going to know about it, hence the protection from embarrassment. Um, the people try to avoid criminal charges, so there's no chance to be accountable in the legal system. And what predators and abusers do is they see these spaces as safe and see it as fertile ground for them to carry out their trauma and their abuse. Yeah, absolutely. There was a couple other things from this article, but I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly. And we can go to the conclusion now, which you've led into with what you just said. Yeah. About why is it? Because the whole point of coming up with these stories and relating to, to them to everybody is not just for purposes of being salacious. Okay. No. Why is it that these things happen? Now, obviously, you don't have to have a church with polygamy in its history and to some degree in its present and definitely in its future. You don't have to have polygamy in the equation to have men in positions of power acting badly. Okay. That much is a given. But, but, we have a situation where this seems to happen a number of times as we've recounted. And a lot of these times polygamy is part of the equation. So we already talked about the idea of that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And that whole issue with it's still in print. I mean, for crying out loud, polygamy, you don't have to go to the journal of discourses to get there. Right? All you have to do is open your doctrine and covenants to section 132. It's still there. We've got two of the members of the first presidency right now, President Nelson and President Oaks, who are currently practicing. Well, let's just say I almost said practicing plural marriage. I don't want to say that. I think everybody understands that they have they each have one wife who has predeceased them to whom they were sealed in the temple. And now they are both married again to a second wife to whom they are also sealed in the temple. So eternal marriage wise, they're married to two women. Yeah, that sounds a lot like spiritual wifery, doesn't it? It does. It does. <laughs> That'd and be so a it's, for it. And it's still with us. So this is the problem with polygamy as I see it. And I've been trying to think about why is this happening and what can we learn from this? If anything, I think number one is this. Polygamy used to be practiced in the church. It was practiced by revelation from God. And it was essential to exaltation. The more wives one had, the more one would be exalted, the more spirit offspring you could have to, you know, the whole nine yards to multiply and replenish the planets, as it were. So it's there. And, you know, it's funny because remember when we had um, Ben McKay on the show a couple weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago now from uh, the state presidency. Mm -hmm. And you asked him, what one thing would you change about the church? Or maybe it was a caller who asked him. And he said, I would just get rid of polygamy. I would make it so it never happened. Mm, yeah. Which almost seemed like cheating to me because I thought, do you get to do time travel when you answer this question? But anyway, he got to do it. And he said, I would just make it so it had never happened. And, you know, I think he was actually very wise in that answer. It is actually a very informed opinion because it gets rid of a lot of unhealthiness in the church. Yes. But the fact is, it did used to be practiced um, in the church as... Uh, sanctioned by God, commanded by God. And number two, it will be practiced in the future. It'll be, there will be plural marriage in the celestial kingdom. I mean, we all know that, right? Mm -hmm. Even though it's not talked about. Joseph Smith was sealed to 33 women by what scholars tell us. We know Brigham Young was sealed to a bunch of people. When they are resurrected and they're going to be in the celestial kingdom, 
those women are still going to be sealed to them, right? So there will be plural marriage in the celestial kingdom. And apparently President Nelson will have at least two wives there and President Oaks will have at least two wives there as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's here with us now in the sense we talked about. It's definitely in the past. It will be there in the future. And so that's that. those are the first components of this. The next component that gets mixed into this is that in the LDS church, we are taught that priesthood leaders are not to be questioned. They're not even to be criticized, even if the criticism is true. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Did you do that? That was amazing. Actually, actually, it was Elder Oaks who did that. Okay, yeah. And so what kind of position does this put a missionary in, a sister missionary in, when they're separated from the family, they're in the mission? I will tell you, and I think most missionaries will second me on this, that missionaries tend to look at their mission president as God on earth. He is the man. He's the one who has the connection with God and also Salt Lake City. But you trust him. You revere him. He is the one who knows what to do. And God tells him what to do in the mission. So if you have a priesthood leader, the mission president, coming to you now and telling you about this and that polygamy is back and it's been revealed to him that he's supposed to start it again. And guess what? Lucky you, you're among that select number who get to practice it with him, then it becomes more and more difficult to say no from the culture that Mormonism creates for its members. And then this last part, the culture of secrecy. Mormons understand that things are supposed, there are some things that are supposed to be kept secret. And those are the sacred things. Everybody who's a missionary, has already gone through the temple. They understand about taking oaths of secrecy and how important those things are and how it's to protect the most sacred things that God has to give to us in terms of knowledge and ordinances. So you got these missionaries who are in this position and it's like a perfect storm when a mission president decides to start behaving badly. And I think this helps to explain why it is that Orson Wright, back in 1980, was able to get 10 out of 14 sister missionaries to go along with this, who are adult women, at least 21 years old back in 1980, 22, 23, what, however old they were, that they went along with it. Fortunately, there were some who didn't, and they called and told. But think about what they have to do in order to call home and tell on their mission president. Because what they're doing is they're violating any secrecy. They are certainly criticizing a church leader. Is the criticism true? Yes. But according to Elder Oaks, that doesn't make any difference, right? Even if the criticism is true, you don't criticize a church leader. And so what ends up happening then is that it's like a Petri dish for this kind of stuff to swarm and multiply. And ultimately, there's this whole idea that we know of in the church. Let's back up and just talk about Elder Oaks, that clip you just played. He goes on to explain why it is that he says that. Do you remember why it is that he, he says that, that leaders should not be criticized even if the criticism is true? They are volunteers called by God, and hence they have not 
asked for this calling, hence they should not be getting this criticism. Are you guessing there? No, I'm guessing. I'm guessing, but I know the talk well enough that I think that's what it is. Okay, here's what I think it is. And uh, what, he, what he says, and this will sound familiar to you, because if you criticize the leader of the church, even if the criticism is true, it will impede his ability to do the work that the Lord has called him to. Yeah, like these fine men tonight. Exactly. So built into that whole thing is the idea that we don't criticize leaders because it makes the church look bad. And if the church looks bad, then it gets impeded in its ability to make more members and to keep members in the church, but mainly to make more members who want to keep this good, shiny face to the outside world. So we don't bring up the bad stuff that might happen by certain leaders in the church. So that's the whole thing. Then something like this breaks open. The leaders in Salt Lake get notified. They come to the rescue. They get rid of the mission president. They put in a new mission president. And I am sure that the leaders who go there to take care of the situation are mortified. They're very concerned about the welfare and the emotional state of the missionaries who have been victimized. Mm. But also the prime directive is still there. And the prime directive is to make it so that the LDS church doesn't look bad because that would impede it in its mission of converting other people. Or the LDS church could just be accountable and hold its authorities accountable. Yeah. And then we would all be able to place more trust in it. And hence within its mission might build a move forward without any uh, hiccups. Well, right, exactly. So there's this balance that they do, but I think they've done a really good job of putting the kibosh on these incidents that, so that people don't find out about them. So we're kind of spilling the beans tonight. By the way, in the article by Peggy Fletcher Stack about Philander Smart III, she talked to Marie Cornwall, a retired Brigham Young University sociology professor. And this is what Cornwall said. You know, she understands about protecting the, the sister missionaries, their privacy, their confidentiality, not exposing them to public scorn or ridicule. But she also says this, because there's another side of that coin, right? And I'll bet you know what it is and all the listeners know. The problem in this case, she said, is that when there's no notification to people that there was a problem with him, with Philander Smart, other victims might not know to come forward. Mm. What do you do? This is a continuation of the quote. What do you do to make sure the person doesn't go on to abuse others? So there's two things she puts there, right? Other victims might not know to come forward. And what have you done to try and make it so that this individual does not abuse others. Yeah. Well, you sent him home and you excommunicated him. But does that really notify anybody? Especially when you send him home saying that his wife didn't feel well. Right. Right. And the excommunication, I'm sure, was done, you know, very secretly. The church doesn't talk about it. Right. So that's everything that I had to talk about tonight. And I'm really looking forward to what listeners think. Yeah, so we put the number up. It is 435-200-3478. And uh, uh, it's also 435-200-FIST. Yes. Um, obviously, I'm looking at this. I'm going to put something up on the screen here for a moment. Mm. And let me get rid of the comment. Uh, 
But you see here discernment. It takes faith to believe that the resurrected Lord is watching. It's that same quote we just played a little bit ago. But you've got four guys there, you know, bishops, stake presidents, mission presidents, guys who are in trouble. Um, it becomes really clear that uh, that you've got people doing bad things and discernment doesn't really work. As you're pointing out, polygamy ties into all this. Where the church is always uh, apparently kind of trying to keep all this stuff under wraps. Um, it's all just a big, giant dumpster fire. Uh, caller, you are on the air. What is your name? Wow. Um, my name is Chris. Chris, you are on the air, Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What are your thoughts tonight, my friend? Wow, wow. Um, first off, uh, thank you guys so much for um, doing this tonight, taking the call. I have to say, um, huge fans of both of you. You guys are just awesome. And love you guys I so thank you for all that I gotta mute my microphone here so I don't get feedback somebody somebody mentioned you know and again I'm, I'm not trying to be arrogant and and point at RFM and I because there's other folks that are doing this too Lindsay Hansen Park uh, Jonathan Streeter uh, John DeLynn Mormon stories but when when you look at the fact that who are the honest people who are the people that have integrity in these spaces of talking about all of this stuff? And it seems like it's constantly, it's the apostates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have a question or anything for us or uh, appreciate the thank yeah, yous? No, no, no. I have, I absolutely, I have a firsthand story that I, I think touches um, almost every point that I think you guys have been talking about all night. Um, so I have firsthand, um, back in, first of all, my name's, I, I did a Mormon stories episode on this, um, on my story with John DeLynn in uh, 2017. So I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole story because if listeners are interested, they could go back. I think it was like episode 896 or something like that. But anyways, um, back in 2000, um, sorry, 1980. I was a freshman at BYU, and I had a cousin who was a stake president um, at that time in um, Provo. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, over the course of my freshman year, there were two experiences that I had where um, at, the, at, the, at the very minimum, you could call them grooming, but, you know, experiences where he um, had me over, invited me into um, – was completely he inappropriate situation? Yeah, who's the he we're talking know, about? Yeah. If you want, if you don't want to name it, oh. I understand too. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, that's yeah, I have no problem. Um, so my my cousin at the time, um, we're, let's just call him Lowell. His name was Lowell Robinson. He was this, um, a, yeah. he's been a stake president, mission president, everything. So this is all out in the public and open. And, I remember this episode um, of Mormon Stories. Yeah. So, um, Anyways, there were a couple, and I, like I said, I'm not going to get into all the details, but um, there were a couple experiences where I had, where he, I was invited into just completely inappropriate um, positions with him, where um, I was asked to remove all my clothing and, you know, mm. just lie down on, it was, you can listen to the episode. Anyway, it was, I thought it, again, as a, as a completely um, all-in TBM, you know, freshman at BYU, I, I remember thinking, okay, weird experiences, but I didn't, I never told anyone. I didn't tell my family, no friends or anything. And um, about, let's see, it would have been, that was 88. So five, so eight years later, um, uh, my brother, um, we, I was back from a mission. My brother came back from a mission. And in 1995, my brother comes over to uh, the apartment where I and my wife at the time were living. 
and he was just clearly uh, disturbed. And he said, Chris, did you hear about Lowell? What happened to Lowell? And I said, no, I, I don't know. And he said he was just called to be a mission president. And, and I said, oh, that's, that's great. I'm, that's good for him. And he said, no, that's not good. He can't be a mission president. And I was like, why can't he be a mission president? And so um, but he wouldn't really share. And I it literally took some um, conversation to get him comfortable. And he began to tell me, he said, well, Chris, one time he took me and he got, got into these stories where he um, he said, have you ever been to the house up in Midway um, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I, I have been. And, you know, he insisted that we sleep in the same bed, insisted that, um, you know, shower before bed and just weird things before that. And um, he got my brother to do even worse things, get into a, you know, a hot tub naked and things like that. And um, and so I'm listening to my brother share this with me. And I, I had never even to that up until that point had second thoughts about or memories of my experiences. And then he, um, and then he said, Chris, did, did teach tell you about the, the sheepskin importing business? And I'm like, tell me about that. <laughs> and I knew exactly what that was, but he didn't know that I knew. And so he starts sharing me these experiences with where um, that were the same as mine and clearly disturbing, showing a pattern that, that was absolutely inappropriate for, uh, you know, any, person or individual but let alone a man and his standing up at that up until that point like I said he'd been a bishop and a stake president and um and so we we talked we called my parents we um tried to figure out what to do we decided to go to my bishop and I shared the whole story with my bishop and he came back and said I don't know what to do Chris let me talk to the stake president the stake the next day he came back and and the bishop told me, the stake president doesn't know what to do with, do you mind if he goes to the area authority? And I'm like, wow, this is kind of getting crazy fast. And um, and so he came back after that, and he called me up after a few days and said, Chris, you um, you and your brother have an appointment to go meet with um, uh, Elder Earl C. Tingey, who is at that time, I believe, in the presidency of the 70. Um, and he said, you're, supposed, you're uh, to go to church headquarters and uh, share the story with them. And so um, I, and at that time, again, I was, you know, uh, even at that time, 95, I had never been to church headquarters, um, you know, didn't, uh, you know, oh, really know anyone um, outside of my, my cousin and my, and his father, who was also a special, um, he was a, well, he was a general area authority and regional representative to the 70, um, his father was. And so, outside of them i had no you know knowing or contact with any other leaders of the church and so it was kind of a big deal for me and my brother so we went to church headquarters and for about an hour we met with um earl c tingy um who i believe is still alive just so you know and um we shared this whole story with him told him everything that had happened you know these experiences that clearly showed this disturbing pattern of behavior inappropriate some um, contact with with young men and here they were calling this man to be a mission president um he was called to preside over the mexico um i think it was the mexico leon mission and um and so uh we told him and said hey you might want to think twice about this and um and that was that and after that meeting they he basically said all right we'll be in touch with you and we never heard anything for you know 
or until uh, ever really. Uh, and then in um, 2000, so nothing happened at all. He ended up serving as mission president, um, which my brothers, my brother and I were thought were just, we were just disturbed by that. We thought we were just, you know, kind of dumbfounded. Like, why would they do nothing and just let him serve a mission after what we just went to them with? And it was confusing and odd and weird, but we just kind of put it on our shelf and just let it slide and never, you know, close family and friends knew, but we never talked about it. And then in 2006, I ended up meeting um, another cousin um, who I will not name and, um, and found out that he had had uh, the sim- similar experiences um, and more um, completely inappropriate. Um, just really, really, he was, he, this, this cousin was uh, very, very deeply um, I and mean, emotionally um, hurt by this, by this individual, this, this cousin that, uh, that we shared. And, um, and anyways, when I, when we put our um, heads together and he found out that we had the same experiences, um, uh, back in uh 88 and and i don't know when my brothers exactly happened but he was livid and at the time when this happened in 2006 this same cousin um obviously having returned from his mission he was um then serving as i think he was a his second tour as a stake president um in the edgemont provo edgemont i think it's either the edgemont provo stake or the sharon east stake i'm not sure which which stake it was but um he was sitting in the stake presidency at that time, and my um, my younger cousin, who was my age or a little around that, um, went. He was just livid. He went to church headquarters and he met with um, Merrill Bateman, and um, he, you know, rattled some cages up there and just said, "Look, you guys have a problem. This happened, and what are you doing about it?" And um, all we know from that point is they quietly released him. You know, you, you've been talking, you guys have been talking about a lot of points and things that these stories kind of illustrate and show patterns of. Um, and the church has quietly released him and, um, and did nothing about it. Um, and even since that day, really nothing, um, no significant stories or, um, you know, um, things had happened until... Um, into whenever the McKenna Denson, you guys talked about the McKenna Denson story. Um, when that story happened, I, that's when I was just like, oh my gosh, I, you know, like, and like what you said, RFM, nobody, there, there's a lot of weirdness and um, things with that whole story, but we definitely know that, that, that Joseph Bishop, there was some improprieties that he admitted to. And when she came forward with that story, I called up, that's when I called up um, John Dolan and I was like, Look, this is real. Like, church leaders, um, it's so weird how you would think that they want to protect the people who are being abused and harmed by, yeah, and and they don't. They do nothing. They they just quietly do everything that they can to brush it under the rug, hope that there's not, a, you know, a, a a settlement or a payment or or, or something like that. Um, they do nothing. And um, uh, the other thing, too, that I wanted to say, Bill, you were talking about discernment and things like that. Another very just interesting for viewers or listeners out there, my cousin, who is the mission president, he... Um, and I just want to say, Carl, he, I, I really do appreciate the story. I, I also want to give a couple other callers a chance to, to talk as well. Oh, 
anyway. Okay. Is I'll, that okay? I'll, 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 yeah. Oh, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And I, and I want to say like, I, we, we let you go a little long there only because I think your story is crucial. I think people need to hear that whatever this is, it feels like it's a unhealthy old white boys club, you know, and, and these men all kind of protect each other, it seems. And uh, it does seem like a lot of deep unhealthiness here. And, I, and I'm really sorry about your experience, my friend. Oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah, it's it le- for me leaving the church and and that whole process has been completely healthy and just and like I said, that's a different story. But that's it. Thank you guys so much for just letting me call and talk. You guys are awesome, fantastic, and love you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chris. So um, just another story to kind of add to some of the stuff that goes on for people to be sent on. You know, other callings after these things come forward to me is absolutely insane, RFM. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're uh, talking to this caller, I'll say, you know, these are they're they're generally good people. They're caring people. They do care about their missionaries. Uh, they care about the young people in the church. I'm sure, but over and over and over again, when there arises a conflict between their allegiance to the members of the church and their allegiance to the reputation or good name of the church, then they will choose the good name of the church every time. Yeah, we've got our our second caller, Michelle, you are on the line here, Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What is on your mind tonight regarding tonight's show? Well, I just think that y'all really, you bring up such an important thing that really needs to be exposed. I appreciate how much y'all are exposing it. Um, these sexual abuses in the church are such a huge issue. And I've had issues myself um, with that, not specifically having been abused myself, but certainly having been in situations with, in particular with a couple of stake presidents that were very, very grotesquely inappropriate in um, worthiness interviews and um, extremely sexually explicit in their manner of questioning and 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 um, and such. And then um, when I started really doubting um, the church and everything this past year, and came to a point of um, of of it being evident, <laughs> I was called in by my stake president um, and was grilled uh, like you wouldn't believe um, on a couple of occasions. And on the last time that he met with me, which was last year in January, I'm sorry, it was this January, um, he actually ended up, I kind of turned tables on him and and talked about this being a big problem in the church and being one of the reasons why I am losing any and all testimony of the LDS church being true. And, um, and I talked about, you know, why do, why is it that they hide these abuses that, you know, the, the policy, um, um, when abuse is, is reported is to call the church attorney, not to call the authorities, not to help the victim, not to, you know, do anything that any reasonable person should do, not to, you know, like a, a teacher, a social worker, anyone like that is a mandatory reporter. 
why aren't they? You know, why wouldn't you report it? And um, my stake president here, and I'm not going to say exactly where I am. I'll say I'm in the state of Florida. Um, I don't want to say what stake or what town I'm in for the protection of his son. But he actually admitted to me that his son had just been removed and was put into therapeutic foster care because he was sexually abused himself. Mm. And that and the my stake president broke down in tears saying that that it's that the guilt for that is something he'll have to live with for the rest of his life. So now in the context of the conversation I don't know if he was admitting that he had abused his son or if he was admitting that he had failed to protect his son from abuse. Yeah, most likely. And yeah. but this was a huge concern to me. And and as I thought of this and I thought of the children, I mean, I was a primary teacher and I love the children so much. And I feel like we have nothing more important um in this life than to protect the children that are entrusted to us in any capacity that they're entrusted to us. And, um, so I had a real problem with that, like with him serving as a state president where he's going to be in one-on-one interviews with children and youth. And, um, so I did not want to, um, confirm his, you know, I didn't want to raise my hand in, favor of his calling when we had our stake conference, I ended up not attending, but I spoke, I actually called and talked to Lindsay Hanson Park about this case. Yeah. And she referred me to an attorney that I spoke to and, and he gave me some advice. Um, and I ended up calling church officials above my stake and was pretty much told too bad. He's got seven more years as a stake president. Like yeah, they don't even care. Right, they didn't even want to look into it. And his son has been removed. Yeah. Like you point you out. It's removed because yeah. you didn't, because daddy didn't, didn't call. Yeah. You get removed, you know, yeah. like it just seems really specifically awful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an unhealthy and, system with lots of unhealthy mechanisms. I don't, I don't mean to be rude. I'm, I'm going to move on to the next call just so we can get one more in because we're right up against it. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for taking my call. I just hope I don't want anybody having one-on-one interviews. Don't let your kids and no. your youth have one-on-one interviews. No. Just don't do it. It's yeah. too dangerous because yeah, you never know. Yeah. In, in this church, you probably should have three grown adults in the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Thank you. Anyway, caller. Thanks for taking my call. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. We'll, uh, we'll take one more, but I'm sh- again, maybe in this last call, if we can try to stay away from a personal story, I don't want to go super long, um, but any comments about the show itself. So here is call number three for the show. Uh, caller, what's your name? Oop, they hung up with me. So maybe we'll get another one. Somebody else wants to call. Go ahead and dial in 435-200-FIST. Um, I, I'm sure if we were to open up the phone lines for 10 episodes straight and have people share their horror stories, there would be plenty of them to fill the time. Caller, uh, your name? Uh, I'm going to say Mike. Mike, you are on the air with Mormonism Live. We're up against the clock, if you can just keep it kind of brief. Um, but what are your yeah, thoughts hello? on tonight's show? I just wanted to get your opinion. 
sure. on the sacrament meeting uh, where our stake president um, called up, uh, got up and said that another stake president was being released because of harassment uh, on, uh, um, you know, face masks and shots and then started to basically browbeat the congregation on yeah. is, members that weren't wearing their masks. Yeah, is your I just wanted to get your opinion. Yeah, gotcha. No problem. I'll hang up with you and we'll uh, we'll address that. Thank you. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. What was tonight's episode on RFM? I think it was on masks and vaccinations, Bill. <laughs> uh caller, I apologize but okay. <laughs> Uh, anything we'll just wrap up with that. We'll call it, we'll end it right there. Um, I will confess that I've been vaccinated. Yeah. I've been vaccinated. Got both of them. I've also had COVID. It sucked. Um, it was right. You did. I remember it was a mild case, but it has still left me with some loss of smell and taste and uh, some breathing issues. And I already had COPD to begin with. So, um, did you get it before or after you were vaccinated? Oh, long before I had it in June of last year and then got vaccinated recently when, uh, you know, when those came out. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, RFM, first off, thank you. Great show. Uh, we laid out multiple issues and things that were going on um, in the church's history, but also I think we're all well aware it's happening right now in the here and now. Um, any closing thoughts from you before we wrap up the episode? Yeah, just what you're talking about there. Now, once again, I want to say the vast majority of mission presidents serve a great sacrifice. They serve honorably. But we've got a few stories that we've talked about. Some of them had articles written about them. Others would never see in the light of day, except for somebody maybe who blabbed. Mm-hmm. And so it leads one to surmise that we probably don't know everything that's happened or what might even currently be happening. Yeah. And notice Jared didn't have a whole lot to say tonight. Well, he didn't? No, Jared didn't say. I don't think he was in there saying anything at all. I don't think this is one of the issues where he wanted to, to be defending the uh, the church on. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, is he, okay. he going to come on the show at any point? I know he'd been making some sort of uh, motions about coming on the show to... Never reached out to me. To defend the church. He doesn't want to defend the church on the show? Mm-mm. Oh, well, that's okay. I understand. Well, I guess we probably ought to just recognize one last time before we close it out. In light of everything that we've talked about tonight, yeah. this quote is gold, Jerry, gold. This is this is what Henry B. Eyring has to say about our Heavenly Father in the midst of all of these abuses and traumas. It takes faith to believe that the resurrected Lord is watching over the, de- the details, the daily details of his kingdom. It takes faith to believe that he calls imperfect people into positions of trust. It takes faith to believe that he knows the people he calls perfectly, both their capacities and their potential, and so makes no mistakes in his calls. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true.